In our normal weekly flow of church services, we study through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, explaining it as we go. We're currently in the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, but I felt like we needed to stop for a few weeks to talk about some pressing issues in our world that are weighing on hearts and minds right now. Last week, we talked about racism, and if you're a Christian and you missed that message, I'd encourage you to hop on our website and watch that or listen to that. I think it's really important and timely. And this week, we're going to look at the subject of the end of the world, because a lot of people are looking around and they're asking, is this it? Is this the beginning of the end? And then next week, we're going to look at the subject of deconstructionism. That's a term used when someone leaves their faith, generally Christianity though, in favor of agnosticism or atheism. If you or someone you know are wrestling with doubts about the Christian faith, or if you've left the Christian faith, you're really going to want to tune in for that, as are all parents. Because listen, the world that our kids are growing up in right now is not the same world that you and I grew up in. And so we need to recognize this and respond in the way that we raise our children, particularly intellectually and philosophically. So don't miss next week as we talk about that. I was texting with a buddy of mine earlier this week who's who's not a Christian. And he said to me, he said, you guys must be talking a lot about all the stuff going on in the world right now. And you must be talking about this in your church. And so I told him I was actually about to start doing this series. And then I told him, you know, I I used to be a little bit nervous sometimes about telling people who weren't Christians what I believe about the end times, about how the world is going to end, because I knew that they'd find it weird. But then 2020 happened. And now suddenly it doesn't seem so weird at all. In fact, you could tell someone now and they'd probably say something like, yeah, I could, I could see that happening probably around November. That sounds about like where things will be at. Things have gotten so crazy in the world that it seems foolish to rule out any possibility at this point, doesn't it? Crazy times. What I want to talk about today is what the Bible says about what's happening right now And what the Bible says is going to happen next. What the Bible says about the end of the world is a field of study known as eschatology. You can impress your friends at party with that word. Eschatology. And I cannot possibly bring you up to speed on all of eschatology in one message. You have to make a significant time investment to really study this subject if you want to get a grasp on this. Because get this. The Bible says so much about the end of the world. We're not talking about a few verses. We're talking about entire books, entire chapters, entire sections of multiple books in the Bible. In fact, the Bible talks more about the time period we're living in right now than it does about any other time period in history. So I'm going to have to talk very broadly I'm going to have to share some things very plainly that will immediately trigger dozens of questions in your mind. And so what I've done is I've done my best to put some links on the outline that will direct you to other messages that will help you study these things further and in greater detail. But for the sake of time in this message today, I've got to speak broadly and plainly. As we all know, the world is full, full of different religions and faiths. There are thousands of them, and most of them have their own sacred writings. One of the great myths about religion is that there's no way to judge between all of these sacred writings because they're not falsifiable. When I say falsifiable, I mean it's impossible to prove whether they're true or false because they talk about things that cannot be tested or observed, like spiritual dimensions and invisible gods. So why do I say that that viewpoint is a myth? Because the Bible is falsifiable. You see, among all the sacred writings in the world, the Bible is the only one built upon prophecy and a specific historical event, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The prophecies cover a time period of thousands of years, many of which have passed and many that are yet 
to come. So we can actually look at the Bible's prophecies and we can actually judge, we can evaluate, we can determine whether they are firstly specific enough to be meaningful. So in other words, when the Bible gives prophecies, are they detailed, are they specific, or are they like, there will be a man in a distant land who will have a birthday one year? How specific are the prophecies in the Bible? Are they specific enough to be meaningful? We can evaluate that. And then secondly, we can evaluate whether the ones that speak to periods of history that have already passed have come true. We can evaluate whether the prophecies of the Bible are specific enough, and we can evaluate whether the ones that are supposed to have already come true have actually proven to be true. One of the times God was speaking to one of his prophets, a dude named Isaiah, and he told Isaiah to write this down. So the Bible says this is God who was speaking to Isaiah, saying, Isaiah, write this down. And God said, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. In other words, the God of the Christian Bible says, there's no one like me. And to prove it, I'm going to tell you how the world is going to end. I'm going to tell you about the future long before it arrives. You see, the Christian God, the God of the Bible, ties his reputation to the accuracy of the prophecies contained in the Scriptures. No other sacred writings in the world dare to attach their reputation to prophecy. Only the Bible does that. Write this down. The God of the Bible ties his reputation to his ability to accurately prophesy the future. The God of the Bible ties his reputation to his ability to accurately prophesy the future. Now, there are plenty of prophecies about the future out there, aren't there? There are plenty of them. And we go crazy for them. We love this stuff. Everybody's interested in the Mayan calendar that might be connected to the end of the world. Everybody's interested in things like the prophecies of Nostradamus, which are ludicrously vague, by the way, if you actually look into them. And everybody's interested in whatever else the History Channel can come up with regarding predictions about the future. I want to suggest to you that the way to determine which sources deserve your attention is to look closely at their track record. In other words, do they have a track record of accurately predicting the future with specificity? If they don't, I want to suggest to you that they don't deserve your time and attention. Not only is the Bible built on incredibly specific prophecies, but if you study this, you will find that the Bible boasts a success rate of 100% accuracy. And if you'll get into studying it, you'll discover that the Bible's prophecies are so accurate, so specific, across such a large span of time, thousands of years, and across so many different authors, that the only possible explanation is an ultimate author who exists outside of time. The more you get into prophecy, the more you get into what the Bible says about the future, the more you'll find that's the only conclusion you can reach. There has to be an ultimate author behind the Bible who exists outside of time and is able to perceive all of it. Hopefully, I've at least piqued your interest by now. As I said, there's so much I could share with you. There's so much I could share to prove those statements that I've just made, but for time's sake, I'm going to share just three examples of what I'm talking about. And as I mentioned, I've noted on your outline where you can go to study any of these examples in greater detail. Firstly, there are around 300 prophecies about Jesus that are found in the Old Testament of the Bible. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Old Testament is the part that was written before Jesus came to the earth. The oldest copies we have of the Old Testament, hard copies in our hands that we can see and touch, date back to at least 100 years before the birth of Jesus. And that's significant because it means all these prophecies that I'm talking about 
were written down and recorded, and we have copies of them today from at least a century before Jesus was even born. These 300-some prophecies give some incredibly specific details about the one called Messiah, the Hebrew Savior who was prophesied to appear and make things right between God and man. And when I say they're specific, here are a few examples of what I'm talking about. These prophecies declared that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He would come from the family line of King David. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Though he would be Jewish, his own people would reject him. He would die in a manner where his hands and feet would be pierced and a sword would pierce his side. And on and on and on I could go. When you look at the list of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, you're going to find some that realistically could be faked. Some of them could be faked. But you're also going to find many that simply could not possibly be faked. And statistically, that's really, really important because as you place these qualifiers on a person's life, as you say they need to meet this criteria and this criteria and this criteria, as you keep adding each additional criteria, the odds of one person meeting all of them become exponentially astronomical. In his book, Science Speaks, a man named Peter Stoner took just six prophecies about Jesus, just six, and calculated the odds of any one man fulfilling those six to be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one in one with 17 zeros after it. And to help us visualize those odds, Stoner tells us that if we had 10 to the 17th power silver dollars, silver coins, they would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. That's the number we're talking about. But now get this. The odds of one in 10 to the 17th power would be the same as me then marking one of those silver dollars with a Sharpie, stirring up all of those coins, giving you a helicopter, and telling you that you have to find the one silver dollar that I marked and you've got one try to do it. Those are the odds we're talking about here. At a certain point, the odds become so ridiculous that coincidence has to go out the window, to put it mildly. When we reach the limits of the natural, it is only reasonable to consider the supernatural. In my opinion, The most astounding of all the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus is found in the Old Testament book recorded by a prophet named Daniel. And I say that because in the ninth chapter of Daniel, there's a prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, declaring the exact date that Messiah would ride into Jerusalem and publicly declare himself to be Messiah. Now, you can say, well, well, Jesus could have read that, Jeff, and just staged the whole thing, obviously. But, but before Jesus could stage the whole thing, he first had to be born in the right frame of time, in the right part of history to meet this date. He also had to be born in Bethlehem, which was not a city. It was a town of maybe a few hundred people. Those things are very, very hard to fake. You can't control where you're born, and you can't control when you're born. He also had to be born, as we said, in the family line of David. You can't really choose to do that. When you stack up all these prophecies about Jesus, you find that too many of them were simply, they're simply beyond man's control. Manuscripts of Daniel that contain the prophecy I'm talking about have been found at Qumran among the Dead Sea Scrolls, dating to somewhere between 150 B.C. and 250 B.C., as well as in a copy of the Septuagint dating back to at least 100 B.C. And again, that's significant, because while we believe that Daniel actually wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth, there is physical, archaeological evidence on the earth today that proves this prophecy was written at least 150 years before Jesus was even born. You can't really fake that. It's remarkable 
But incredibly, it's not as remarkable as what I'm about to tell you next. The Old Testament, as I said, spoke over 300 times about Messiah, about how Jesus would come to the earth as a man. Those prophecies were all fulfilled by Jesus, literally. But the Bible also talks more than two and a half thousand times about how Jesus is going to return to the earth again. And let me tell you, all of those prophecies are going to be fulfilled literally as well. Second example of already fulfilled Bible prophecy. The last book in the Bible is called Revelation. It was written by John the Apostle around the year 96 AD. John claimed to have received a revelation from God, Jesus specifically, about how the future of the world would unfold. The focus is primarily on what we would call the end days, the last days, the end of the world, basically. But in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, John records seven letters to seven churches, and he claims that these letters were dictated to him by Jesus himself. These seven churches were real. They existed in real historical places on the earth at the time John was writing, and they found the archaeological ruins of, I believe, actually all seven by this point. These letters addressed issues that were taking place in the church at that time, around 96 AD, but they also laid out all of church history that would unfold from 96 AD to the beginning of the end times. Now, if you're not tracking with me, here's what I'm saying. I mean, if you take every letter of these seven letters, letters one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you put them in the exact order that they're written in, each of them describes a period of church history beginning in 96 AD. It covers a chunk of time, sometimes a few decades, sometimes a few centuries, but all sequential, all one after the other, without any gaps. They can, they're full of just the most incredibly specific details. I'm talking about events like they prophesy 250 years of Roman persecution of the church on the earth, followed by the rise of Constantine and the creation of the Roman Catholic Church. It talks about the Inquisitions. It talks about the Reformation, and on and on and on I could go. And the amazing thing is, if any of these letters were in any other order, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't make sense. But there they are, lined up perfectly in order. Now, the oldest manuscripts that we have for the book of Revelation date to the 3rd or 4th century A.D. My point is that these two chapters of Revelation lay out almost 2,000 years of history, centuries in advance, with specificity and total accuracy. And it took a little while for Bible scholars to begin to recognize this pattern because they had to live through some of these phases of church history before they could look back and identify the pattern. But when they did, Bible scholars were actually able to begin to predict what was going to happen next in church history. And they did. And they wrote about it in advance in great detail, and they were spot on. They were spot on. If you take those seven letters and the time periods of church history that they talk about in order and you lay them all out, guess where we are on that timeline? We are right at the end. We're right at the end. The final part of church history has been here for decades already. And we're right there according to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The third example of already fulfilled biblical prophecy that I want to direct your attention to is the state of Israel. I'm leaving out a bunch of stuff, but here's some of the basics. On the day that we celebrate as Palm Sunday, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus actually wept as he looked out over the city of Jerusalem. He did so because he knew that in just a few days, the people would ultimately reject him as their savior. His own people would reject him as their savior. And then Jesus prophesied about what would happen to Jerusalem. He said this, it's on your outline. He said, speaking of Jerusalem, days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you 
one stone upon another. Jesus spoke these words around 33 AD, and that's exactly what happened 37 years later in the year 70 AD. The Roman general Titus Vespasian led his army into Jerusalem and Israel to crush a political militant uprising among the Jews, and in doing so, he left almost the entire city destroyed. The Romans burned the temple to melt all the gold off of the walls that famously lined the temple. And then they moved every single stone in the pile of rubble that was left to get access to the gold that had melted down between them. The temple was completely destroyed. Not one stone was left unturned, exactly as Jesus had predicted. Beginning in 70 AD and continuing for the next five decades, the Jews of Israel fled for their lives. They scattered across the earth in the historical event known as the Diaspora, and Israel ceased to exist as a country. The territory would be ruled by all kinds of different groups over the next 1,800 years, but never by the Jews themselves. And this created a bit of a problem with something else Jesus had said. In Matthew's gospel, it records Jesus talking about the end times again, the end of the world, and And then it records Jesus sharing this prophecy. It's also on your outlines. He said, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near. At the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In the Bible, the fig tree is used as a symbol, a type of metaphor for political Israel. So what Jesus was saying when he shared that prophecy was, when you see political Israel begin to come back to life, know that the end is near. In fact, the end will be so near when you see that happen that those who are alive to see political Israel come back to life will not all die before all the events that I've told you about unfold. This was remarkable because firstly, when Jesus said this, Israel hadn't even begun to cease to exist yet. Israel was still in the land. The temple was still there. It's 33 AD. None of that bad stuff would happen until 70 AD. And Jesus predicted not only that Israel would cease to exist but they would come back to life after that. Bible scholars understood what Jesus meant, but time began to pass. 200 AD, 300 AD, 400 AD, 500 AD. No sign of Israel coming back to life. 600, 700, 800, 900, 1,000 AD, 1,000 years later, and there's no sign of Israel coming back to life. And as these centuries passed, even the world's greatest theologians began to say, hey, hey listen, the, the only explanation is we, we've got to reevaluate our interpretation of what Jesus said. He, he's got to be speaking metaphorically. It's got to be some kind of word picture. He can't mean it literally because Israel is dead. She's been dead for a thousand years, and, and she doesn't look like she's coming back to life anytime soon. The idea of Israel becoming a nation again by that point was, it was just simply ridiculous, As recently as 1867, Mark Twain visited Israel, and he described it like this, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, a desolation. We never saw a human being on the whole route, hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. Of Israel, Twain wrote, a fast walker could go outside the walls of Jerusalem and walk entirely around the city in an hour. I do not know how else to make one understand how small it is. But incredibly, there were still a few very committed Bible scholars who said, listen, all those prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus came true. Literally. We can't just stop believing the Bible Because it's been a long time. Scripture is is clear. Jesus was clear. 
Israel will exist as a nation again. And some of these men wrote about this in the late 19th century, in the 1890s. And we have those books. We have them in hand today. Well, if you know your 20th century history, then you know what happened. World War I happened. And the aftermath created a perfect storm of circumstances that allowed a man named Hitler to rise to political power in Germany. A man who, by all historical accounts, was obsessed with the occult and the destruction of the Jews. Over six million Jews died under Hitler's Holocaust. But something extraordinary happened in its wake. You see, the world has never been more sympathetic toward Israel than it was immediately following World War II. And that's why on May 14, 1948, the United Nations recognized the existence of the political nation of Israel. And where just a few years earlier it had looked like the Jewish people might be completely exterminated from the face of the earth, in one day they have gone from being in threat, in danger of extinction, to having a political nation, a country again. In a single day, around 1,900 years later, Jesus' words were fulfilled against all odds. And again, I'm only pointing out the obvious when I tell you that the odds of that happening by coincidence are quite simply ridiculous. It would require greater faith than I have. It is a falsifiable, bona fide, inarguable example of the Bible accurately and specifically predicting the future. Now, don't forget what Jesus said when he prophesied about the revival of the state of Israel. He said that it would be the event that would start the countdown toward the end times. He said that some of those who saw it happen would still be alive on the earth when he came back again. In other words, all the end times events spoken about in the Bible are going to unfold within a generation. And right now, we are 72 years into that generation. According to Jesus in the Bible, we are right there. We are so close to the end. My point in sharing these three examples of fulfilled prophecy in the Bible is to suggest to you that there are quite simply no mystical or sacred writings in existence that are worthy of being spoken of in the same breath as the Bible. Because the Bible proves its supernatural origins by doing that which can only be explained supernaturally, predicting the future accurately. Secondly, and obviously, given the Bible's track record, <laughs> We should be very interested in those prophecies in the Bible that have not yet been fulfilled because we have every reason based upon history, based upon its track record, to believe that those prophecies will also be fulfilled, literally. So what does the Bible say the world will look like as it moves toward the end times? Again, there's so much I could say, but studying this stuff takes a while. All I can do in this message is just share one example with you, one descriptor with you. It's on your outline from Matthew's gospel. Jesus said it would be like this in the last days. He said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. If you look at that last word Jesus said, sorrows, in the original Greek, you'll discover that it actually means birth pangs. Jesus was telling his disciples that in the end times, all these things are going to increase with frequency and intensity like birth contractions. What things? Well, all the things Jesus listed, wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against each other, famines, pestilences, which by the way literally means a fatal epidemic disease, and earthquakes, natural disasters. Now all of those things have obviously happened before in history, but Jesus says as we move toward the end times in those last days, 
things are going to be very different because all these things are going to start happening at the same time and they're going to increase in both frequency and intensity like labor contractions in childbirth. There's so much more that I could tell you. There's so much more I could tell you that would make you say, hey, that sounds like the time that we're living in, but I just can't get into them in this message. Here's what Jesus' words tell us, and this is heavy. But Jesus' words in the Bible tell us that things are not going to get better on the earth. I really need us to hear this. Things are not going to get better in the short term. Do you remember how everyone was super excited for 2019 to be done because 2019 was such a bummer year on so many levels? Well, who could have possibly seen what was coming in 2020? Remember in January when we thought the defining issue of 2020 was going to be the Australian wildfires? Who could have seen 2020 coming? The Bible. The Bible saw it coming and it told us about it. I started teaching on this sort of stuff seven years ago, and those messages are still on our website. I was teaching about this stuff before ISIS even existed. If you're not convinced that the Bible accurately predicts the future, I dare you to just go back seven years and listen to those messages I was teaching, and you will be blown away by how accurately they predict what's unfolded over just the past seven years. And here's the thing. I was late to the party. I was late to the party. Christians have been teaching these things for centuries, and the Bible is clear. Things are not about to get better. Why? Because God wants to respect the free will that he gave you, but he also wants you to see the reality of the situation. He wants you to realize that humanity is incapable of fixing everything that is wrong with us. We haven't been able to do it yet, have we? Doesn't seem like things are really trending up, does it? And once you realize that, once you realize that, you become open to looking for real answers. You become open to maybe hearing what Jesus says about your life and your purpose, your existence and your future. God is doing everything through all of these birth pangs, these labor contractions. He's doing everything he can to get your attention because he doesn't want you to miss out on what's about to happen next. The Bible that perfectly predicted the life and ministry of Jesus in over 300 prophecies, the Bible that perfectly predicted the history of the church across a 2,000-year span of history, the Bible that perfectly predicted the revival of the state of Israel after more than 1,800 years, the Bible that told us all the things we're seeing in 2020 would be taking place with increasing frequency and intensity, the Bible that has a perfect track record of predicting the future accurately tells us that the next major event in the end times timeline is the rapture of the church. What is the rapture? The meaning of the word is, is caught up. And I'll be very plain as I tell you what it means. The Bible teaches that in a single moment, in the blink of an eye, Every person on the earth who has placed their faith in Jesus is going to disappear from the earth in a simultaneous event and be transported into the spiritual dimension where God is. Like that. I'm telling you the truth. Hundreds of millions of people are going to disappear from the earth in an instant at the same time. And I believe I'm going to be one of them. And the purpose of this event is to spare those who belong to Jesus from what's going to happen after that. Shortly after the rapture, the earth is going to be plunged into a seven-year time period known as the tribulation. God is going to begin to judge the earth in this time, and it's going to be horrific. The world collectively that has given God the middle finger and told him to get lost, said, we don't want anything to do with you, God. Stay out of our lives. That world is going to have an encounter with the God that they have chosen to make their enemy. And that 
is a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying thought. The tribulation will begin with the rise of a new leader on the world political stage. You see, the world is going to be in a state of absolute chaos. Just think about this. Hundreds of millions of people have disappeared from the earth. The birth pangs that Jesus prophesied have been increasing in frequency and intensity to an unbearable degree. The world is going to be crying out for leadership because there will be a vacuum, a total absence of leaders who have any solutions. Does that sound a little bit like the world we're living in right now? A complete absence of leadership. A world crying out for leadership and answers. Out of the fray will emerge a new leader who will have answers. In fact, according to Scripture, one of the first things this new leader will do is achieve a political miracle, the impossible. He will broker a peace treaty between Israel and the Palestinians. And they'll both sign it. This leader will be so charismatic, so adored, that the world will beg him to take over as much leadership as possible. He will rise to lead a revived Roman Empire, meaning that he will govern the same territories that made up the Roman Empire back in the day. So whatever the EU looks like in this future moment in time, this guy's going to take over leadership of it. And for three and a half years, the earth is going to be enduring these horrific judgments from God, but this political leader will still appear to be a good guy. Then, three and a half years after he signed that peace treaty between Israel and the Palestinians, the mask will come off, and this man will reveal himself to be the one infamously known as Antichrist. He will set up a throne for himself inside the rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and he will demand to be worshipped as God. Not only will he demand to be worshipped, but he will legislate it. He will require everyone to take the infamous mark of the beast, some type of mark or implant in the hand or, or forehead that will be required in order to buy or sell, to engage in commerce, but will also serve as a mark of allegiance to him and recognition of the fact that he is God. Those who refuse to worship him will be hunted down using the most advanced mass surveillance system the world has ever seen, and then executed. Now keep in mind, everything that I'm telling you was written in the Bible over 1,900 years ago. Are you tracking with me on just how crazy that is? For most of history, just think about this, for most of those 1,900 years, even Bible scholars said, I mean, this can't be true. This can't be literal because, because how can somebody possibly know what other people are doing in private? How could somebody see things that are happening all over the world? And Bible scholars said this because the technology for these prophecies to be taken literally simply didn't exist until the last few decades. In some cases, it didn't exist until the last decade. And guess what? This just happens to also be the generation when Israel comes back to life as a political state. So technology has moved to the place where these prophecies can now be taken literally. Israel has become a political state again, against all odds, and it's all coming together at the same time. Once again, the explanatory power of coincidence is woefully inadequate to account for this collision of circumstances and prophecy. Coincidence just doesn't cut it. It's not a reasonable explanation. At the end of the seven years of the tribulation, the Bible says that Jesus will return to the earth along with those who belong to him, and he will rule the earth and return it to its original state, the way it was in the Garden of Eden. It's going to be paradise, and this is going to show everyone what the world was like when God gave it over to mankind. Jesus will rule on the earth for a thousand years. There will be no injustice. There will be no war. Hospitals will be closed because there will be no sickness or disease. Orphanages will be closed because there will be no orphans. Everything that is wrong with the world will be made right when Jesus reigns on the earth for those thousand years. After that, the universe as we know it will come to an end. Those who belong to Jesus will go forward with him to a new heaven, a new earth, and new ages to come. And those who love Jesus will live happily ever after. That's really what's going to happen. 
So what do you do with this? And I know, I know this must trigger a million questions for you. I know I must have said at least a dozen things that had you going, what, what, what did he just say? This is as brief and as plain as I could possibly be in this time limit. And I hope you'll dig into this more using those links on your outline. So what do you do with this? I'm begging you, really, I am begging you to not dismiss this. Please look into these things more closely. Look into the Bible and decide for yourself if what I'm telling you is true. Weigh the evidence. Don't just dismiss it. Because if this is true, and I believe it is, then we really are on the brink of the end of the world. I want you to be with me when the rapture takes place. I want you there. And trust me, you're going to want to be there. (laughs) Because what comes after the rapture is going to be awful. You'll still have the chance to turn to Jesus after the rapture, but it will likely cost you a lot of suffering and your earthly life. And if you can't make the decision to follow Jesus now, when there's not a lot of pressure on you, what makes you think you'll be able to do it when it will cost you everything? But if you decide to wait and not place your faith in Jesus, please hear me clearly on this. If the day comes when hundreds of millions of people disappear from the earth, please remember this message. Find a Bible. Start reading the Gospel of John. Start reading the book of Revelation. And remember, hundreds of millions of people did not disappear because of some mass alien abduction. It wasn't a glitch in the space-time continuum that proves the multiverse. Remember that I told you it was the rapture. Jesus came and got those who belonged to him. He came and got us. Let me tell you what else Jesus said while he was on the earth. He taught that God is holy, which means that God is perfect. And God holds us to that standard of perfection. Now, he has a right to do that. Because in the beginning, he created men and women perfect. He created us with the ability to easily meet that standard and live that way our whole lives. Secondly, God has a right to hold us to that standard because we do the same thing as a society. We hold each other to standards known as laws, and we come up with those laws based on our own level of morality. We agree that it's reasonable to expect people to not murder each other. We also agree that it's not reasonable to expect people to not gossip. So we don't have a law about that. But my point is that we base our laws on our own level of morality. And then anyone who wants to interact with our society has to abide by those laws that we came up with based on our level of morality. Well, God simply does the same thing. The problem for us is that that God's level of morality is, is perfection. It's perfection. God is love, and an aspect of love is justice. Justice is the action of love that makes wrong things right. You see, love that sees things that are wrong and can't fix them is powerless, but but justice is the working out of love to actually fix the things that are wrong. Love cannot be fully expressed without justice, and the problem that you and I have is that God is love, And we've all failed to meet a standard of perfection. Therefore, we're all guilty under a system of justice. And we all have an appointment. We all have a sentencing coming up. And we know that we're guilty. The penalty for our failure to meet God's standard is very simple. It's separation from him. Just as we put people in prison if they can't meet the standards of our society, we cannot be around God if we fail to meet a standard of perfection. We can't be around him here and now, and we can't be around him eternally in the next life. C.S. Lewis was right. We are not a body with a soul. We are a soul with a body. We have a soul that is eternal. The truest part of who we are is going to live forever, but as things stand, we are destined to spend eternity separated from God. And that is a terrible prospect because being separated from God means being cut off from the only source in existence of everything good. God is the source of everything good. He is the source of love, joy, peace, kindness, laughter, fulfillment, purpose, all of those good things. 
And we're cut off from that, destined to remain that way forever. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is that God loves you. He loves you, and he loved you before you were even born, even though he knew everything about you and everything that you would ever do. He created you with a soul because he wanted you to live forever, because he wanted you to enjoy him and know him and experience all the good things that come from a relationship with him. He made you so that he could enjoy you the way that a parent enjoys a child. He loves you, and he created you to know him and be a part of his family. And so he came up with a way to bridge the gap between your imperfections and his perfection. This is how he did it. Jesus came to the earth as a man in your place to be your substitute. He tagged in for you. He lived a perfect life in your place. But your sins and your failures, they still had to be paid for. Justice still had to be done. And so he took your place, took the punishment for all your failures and sins and mine on the cross. That's what he was doing on the cross. He was dying in your place and mine. And then he rose from the dead, also in your place and mine, so that we don't have to stay dead when we die. Now here's what that means. It means God accepts Jesus Living a perfect life in your place. Paying the penalty for your sins in your place. And rising from the dead in your place. And if you will say, I want Jesus to be my substitute, God will accept you as though you were Jesus. God will look at the life Jesus lived and treat it as though it was the life that you lived. He will look at the sinless perfection of Jesus And treat you as though that's who you are. God's spirit will come into your life and begin to transform you from the inside out. And because you will now be inseparably connected to the source of all love, life, truth, and joy. You'll begin to experience a level of fulfillment and meaning you didn't dream was possible. You'll be adopted into the family of God and you'll spend eternity with him. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why Jesus came to the earth. And in a minute, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to that message. Let me say this in conclusion. For those who do not belong to Jesus, the world is truly falling apart. But for those who belong to Jesus, everything is coming together. Those who do not belong to Jesus have every reason to fear what is about to happen next. But those who belong to Jesus have every reason to rejoice over what is about to happen next. The world is going to end one day, one way or another. Your earthly life is going to end one day, one way or another. And one second after the rapture takes place, or one second after you die, your spiritual condition, your soul, is going to be the only thing that matters. The only thing that matters. I know that there's a million different things vying for your attention right now. But one second after the rapture, or one second after you die, none of those things is going to matter. They're not going to matter. The only question that will matter is, are you ready for what comes next? Do you know why the Bible talks about the end of the world so much? Do you know why Jesus talked about the reality of heaven and hell? It's because he loves you and he wants you to know what happens next. Choose Jesus now. He loves you. He's calling out to you. And he wants you to be a part of his family now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Wherever you are, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And if you're here watching this, you're listening to this, and you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Would you just say, Jesus, I want to accept you as my substitute. I want you to come into my life as my God. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to to take the throne in my life, that most important place. Bring me into the family of God and give me that relationship, that relationship with you that is going to change everything. I want to be connected 
to you, to the source of life and peace and joy and, and meaning and purpose. And as you say that, God is going to come into your life, and that process is going to begin if you're praying that right now. And if you're doing that, I want you to go to our website. Go to mynewhope.ca slash gospel. Right now, I want you to go there and watch the video that's on there that's going to explain all of this in greater detail. And then I want to ask you to fill out a short form that's there that's just going to help us to follow up with you. We want to make sure you've got a Bible and, and some things that are going to help you get started in your relationship with Jesus. We don't want you to slip through the cracks. Don't let this moment just pass you by. Go there right now so that we can follow up with you and know that you've made the decision to give your life to Jesus. Let me pray for the rest of us. Jesus, thank you so much for securing our future. And thank you that for each of us, the end of our story is already written. And it is more glorious and beautiful and wonderful than we could possibly imagine because it's all centered around you. You are everything that we're longing for. You are every desire of our heart. You are every need fulfilled, Jesus. And we can't wait to be with you forever. So thank you for securing our future. And then, Father, right now we pray for all of those that we know and love and work with and go to school with who don't know you. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, that they would open up their hearts to you, recognize their need for you, and find the life that is only found in you, Jesus. Help us to be bold in sharing the truth with them and give us opportunities to do that. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing. Go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.